God works through his church to protect the holiness of his people. privilege to be with you guys this morning. I'm very thankful to be here, but I have to admit I am a bit tired uh, this morning. My, my wife and I didn't sleep well last night. Uh, there was a mosquito in our room, just a single mosquito buzzing around the room, making noise in our ears, biting our faces and arms and any exposed skin. It took a while. We even turned on the light at some point to try to find this little evil thing. I finally got him at 3.30 in the morning with one of the electrified tennis rackets and zapped him. Was finally able to go to sleep uh, at about that time. So yeah, I'm a little bit, little bit tired, but I found it, it uh, somewhat applicable to the message for this morning. This tiny little mosquito was disrupting our sleep. It didn't belong there. And even though it was super small, it had a very big impact. Passage today, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to look at the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 5. Paul talks about how if there's any overlooked sin, even if it's very small, it can cause problems in a church. Sin that has not been repented of can be similar to a mosquito in the bedroom at night. This passage is very important and relevant to us as a church we're going to see how it deals with church membership, church discipline, a church's worship of God, and how a church engages the outside world. So let's go ahead and dive right in. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Please follow along as I read. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This passage, if we summarize this passage or had a big idea, main, main point from this passage is this. God works through His church to protect the holiness of His people. We're going to take this passage in three different sections. The first one in verse 1 to 5, we're going to talk about the church and her members. The church and the members of the church. And then we're going to look at six, verse 6 to 9, and look at the church and her God. And then finally, 9 to 13, the church and others. So the first section, verse 1 to 5, the church and her members. This starts off, this section starts off with Paul saying he's heard some disturbing news about them. Verse 1 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. What we, what we know about this sin, what we know about what this man is doing, is that it is sin. It is sexual immorality. And even the culture would point at this and say and agree that this is wrong. This should not be the way it is happening. Now, in verse 1 and 2, uh, verse 2 then says, are you, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Notice twice in two verses, Paul says, among you. He says there's sexual immorality among you, and let the one who has done this be removed from among you. So the logical conclusion of this statement, among you, is that there must be an in. There must be an among or a group. There's, there's a distinguished group of people who are meeting together. This group of Christians meeting together is the local church. They are separated from the rest of the world. There is an in and there is an out. Because he's calling them to put this man out from among them, to be removed. So he's to be put out. There must be an in. This is where we get one of the passages where we get the idea of church membership what we call church membership today. This points to the need for church membership. And this is why we have a strong emphasis on membership at WSBC. We believe that it is right and good for all Christians to be a member of a local church. There's no rugged individual Christians. There's not Lone Ranger Christians going about it by themselves. So if you're a Christian and you're not a member of a church, then I want to tell you, brother and sister, you need to be a member of a church. Come talk to me or to Luke afterwards, or talk to one of the members at WSBC to find out more about what that means to be a member of a local church. Because if if you're a Christian and you're not a member of a church, that means there's a body of believers out there that's missing one of their members. You're missing from the body that you should be a part of. So Christians, join a church if you are not a member. And we see here from verses 1 and 2 that the membership is important because this is God's protection of the holiness of His people. And when I say holiness, I don't mean uh, better. I don't mean um, in some way able to look down on someone else. Holy means to be set apart for God. So God's church and God's people are holy in that they are set apart by God for Himself. So when I say our church is holy, it doesn't mean that we are better than someone else in some way on our own. But we are set apart for God, and it's God who does the setting apart. He's the one who makes us holy. 
So another thing that we see here is that it's the church's responsibility to remove false members from among them. Verse 2 here, Paul condemns their arrogance, saying that they should be mourning. This is not a time to celebrate. This is a time to grieve a loss. It's the same word that's used for meaning the bereavement or to, be, to have a death in the family. This is the type of mourning that should be going on. Now it's possible they don't realize that they should be concerned about the behavior of their fellow members. They may not know that, that they are responsible or that they have some responsibility in this case. It makes me think of being a parent. There are times when I hear a child crying and I listen momentarily and determine that's not my kid. I don't have to do anything with that cry. But there's times where I listen and I say, that is my child. I'm responsible here. I need to step in. I have a responsibility. It's possible that the Corinthian church didn't realize that they were in that position, that they have a responsibility here when one of their members is in this kind of sin, is acting in this way. So Paul is reminding them, in case they've forgotten, that this man is connected to them. They call him brother in the Lord. Therefore, they have a responsibility to deal with him and this sin in order to protect their holiness as the church of God and also to protect his salvation, the salvation of his soul. It says that he should be removed from among them. This is where we get the idea of church discipline. Paul says their responsibility is to remove the man from membership at the church, which is church discipline. Discipline, in general, is correction for the good of the person being corrected. Parents are called to discipline their children, to help them to know right and wrong, and to teach them how to respect authority. That's what good discipline looks like. Church discipline refers to removing someone from membership. It's not a punishment. Church discipline is not punishment. A church does not have the authority to punish sinners. God and God alone has that authority. But the church does have the responsibility to remove from membership anyone that they can no longer affirm is a Christian. If someone is living in such a way that the church cannot agree that this person is a Christian, then they need to be removed from membership. So practically, what are some, uh, why would someone be removed from membership? Maybe some of you here are getting nervous. I would say, don't get nervous. <laughs> some might be thinking, I still sin. Does that mean I need church discipline? The short answer to that is probably not. But let's explore a little bit more about church discipline and what that looks like. We see that church discipline is used here with this man. He's living a lifestyle of deliberate sin. It's not that he sinned one time. Look back at verse 1, the very end. It says, for a man has his father's wife. It's a continual, it's ongoing. This man is living a lifestyle of sin. He's not repented of this sin. And when he sins in this way, it brings shame on the witness of the church as God's people. People from the outside say, what this guy is doing is wrong, and yet he's a member of that church. What's going on at that church? Are they really set apart? That's why this, this sin that he is participating in is so bad, and they need to address it with church discipline by removing him from membership. 
There's a book on the book table. It's called Church Discipline. It's one of the nine Marks books. It's, uh, it's bright red. And in that book, the author gives a very helpful definition of church discipline. He says that church discipline is for those who show characteristic unrepentance. It's a really long word. Characteristic unrepentance. This means that a person is defined by a lifestyle of sin. It's characteristic. Part of their character is that they are unrepentant. They are not turning from their sin to God. So they're living a lifestyle of sin and or they refuse to repent of sin. So there's a wide range of cases that may or may not require church discipline. But I have a couple of church discipline examples that hopefully will make this more clear. These are on different ends of the spectrum. The first is an example of a, a, a true story, a man back in March who uh, shot and killed multiple people in Atlanta in the U.S. This man was, is a very popular story. You may, have, you may have heard about it. This man was a member of a local church. When the church found out what happened, what he had done, uh, at the very next opportunity, the church met together and they immediately removed him from membership as an act of discipline. So they used church discipline and they removed him as a member. They didn't wait to see if he was repentant. He acted in such a grievous way that even if he said he was wrong and wanted to repent, they could not trust his words in that, at that time. They had to move quickly to show and to make sure that they were clear that what he did does not align at all with what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a member of that church. Now, on the opposite extreme, here at WSBC, we have had several times, several times we have removed people as members, as an act of discipline because of non-attendance. They joined at WSBC and attended for a while, but for whatever reason, stopped coming to church. This is not a grievous sin like the previous example, but it is characteristically unrepentant. In most of these cases, we would spend months reaching out to this person, trying to encourage them to come back to church, reminding them of what's in the covenant that we will meet together. We pray for them. We ask members who are friends with these individuals to reach out to them also. Tell them that we miss them at church and we want them to come back and join with us again. There is lots of opportunity to repent and come back to be with us. Now, if they do not return, after some time we do remove them as members of WSBC. Their life is, is not lived in a way that a Christian would live. We believe the Bible says Christians should be meeting together, not forsaking to meet together. But it's not a quick thing. It's a slow process. We want to give lots of time to come back and to repent. Now, in both of these examples, they're really sad. It is not fun to do this. Church discipline is difficult, and it is a sad process. That's why Paul says in verse 2, Are you arrogant? Ought you not rather mourn? When anyone approaches church discipline, there is mourning that is involved. 
there's loss there because someone who we thought was a brother or a sister, we now can't agree that they are. We can't affirm that they are. It doesn't look like they are a believer. And that is, that is sad. There is a loss there. So we don't get excited to participate in church discipline. But we do it because we see from Scripture that it is the responsibility of the church to engage in church discipline. Now, looking, looking, uh, continuing to look at this passage, at verses 3 and 4, Paul gives uh, the, the right weight or power to this command to remove this man from membership. Look there with me at, at verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here Paul says that he's there with them in spirit. Now this is not some kind of mystical or magical occurrence going on. This is not Luke Skywalker helping his friends fight a battle while he's actually sitting on a rock several planets away. No, this is Paul saying that even though I'm not there, if I was there, I would be in support of removing him. Or even though I'm not there, you know where I stand on this issue, and you can operate like I am there. That's what he means by he's there in spirit. He's saying, I'm with you. This is the right thing to do, and you know where I stand. Another thing we should notice from these verses is that notice that it's the assembly together. They are assembled together. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the church coming together. This is their regular meeting. It's not a meeting of the elders. It's not a meeting of the leaders. And this is not Paul telling them that they must remove him because Paul says so. He's saying, no, he's guiding them for when they are together as a church, as a whole, that they are to decide and conduct this process as a church together. It's the church, it's the whole congregation meeting together in the name of Jesus Christ. That has the, they have the power of Jesus to remove this man from membership. So it's God's power through the church that empowers church discipline. And then verse 5. Paul gets very specific about what this removal does. He says they're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And then Paul gives the reason for this whole process, the very end of verse 5. Why go through church discipline? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul is saying here that the flesh must die so that his spirit might live. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that God saves us. Before God saves us, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. Right now, this man's flesh is alive. Because of the way he's living, it's obvious. His flesh is alive, but his spirit is dead. Paul's saying his flesh must die so that his spirit might be saved. In John, the book of John, chapter 12, Jesus foretells his death. He says he's going to die on the cross, and then he says these words. John chapter 12, verse 24. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever, loses, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Paul is explaining using similar idea that what Jesus was, to what Jesus is talking about. The flesh needs to die, that his soul would be able to live. There must be a death before there can be fruit. The same, the same thing is said for all people. All of us must die to our life characterized by sin. And through faith in Jesus, then we can enter the new life lived for God. But there must be a death first and a death to sin, death to the flesh, a spiritual death to those things so that we can be spiritually alive in Christ. Now, this verse 5 shows us that church discipline is conducted out of love. It's not punishment. It's not conducted out of anger. And it love, and we see this love show up in multiple ways. So the church loves the one who is sinning by pointing them to the truth that they are not in Christ, or at least that their life does not indicate they are in Christ. So this man should know, after he is removed from among them, that the church believes he is an outsider, that he is not a Christian. So he needs to be confronted with that. If they leave him in the membership, he may never realize that he is not in Christ. That's not loving him by letting him believe he's a Christian when he probably is not. What's loving to him is letting him know, no, we think you are not a Christian. You need to be saved. You are not in Christ. By the way you are living, it indicates you are not in Christ. That is what's loving to him, to show him, to let him see that he is not a believer. So the church loves this sinning person by pointing out the truth. The church also shows love to each other and to God by participating in God's plan for protecting the holiness of the church. So it's good for the members of the church that we have church discipline. And we also conduct church discipline in order to glorify God. We see the model of it here. It's glorifying to Him that we use church discipline in this way. And the church is also loving to the outside world by operating, by using church discipline, because it makes a clear divide. And it's not even the church making the divide. It highlights the divide between the world and God's people. God has made that distinction. But we highlight the divide between people who are in God's kingdom people who are believers, and the rest of the world. The church doesn't want to highlight that divide so that we can brag. We don't say, hi, you're on the other side. No, we highlight the divide because we say, hey, we used to be there. You can be here. Cross the bridge that is faith in Jesus. If we're not strong with church discipline, if we don't take church membership seriously, then we water down the witness of the church. If we don't highlight this divide between God's people and the rest of the world, then we end up being just some kind of weird club, not the church of God. I want to highlight just a few other things about church discipline that we see from this passage. We see that it should be the church, 
not just the leaders who are deciding to remove someone. It's the congregation assembled together. And then also, church discipline is not telling someone that they should leave and never come back. That's not what church discipline means. It's the church saying, based on your life, we cannot affirm, we cannot agree that you are a child of God. So we're removing you as a member. But somebody who's been removed as a member is welcome to come to church in almost every case. But our view of them would not be of somebody who's in the family of God, but somebody who needs to be saved. So instead of thinking of them as brother and sister, we would think of them as someone who needs salvation. So just to recap these five verses, we see here the the need for church membership. There is an in and there is an out. We also see the need for church discipline. Someone who thinks they're in but they're really not needs to be shown that they are on the outside. And that removal, this church discipline, this is a removal of people whose life is characteristically unrepentant. It means they're living a lifestyle that's defined by sin, a lifestyle of sin. Now the second point for this morning is the, the church and her God. We're going to look at verse 6 to 8. Paul says again that their boasting is not good because they have the wrong attitude towards sin. And he illustrates his point by talking about leaven and a lump. Now, leaven is yeast. It's used for making bread. It causes the bread to rise and to be fluffy. The lump here is the the pile or the lump of dough. All the ingredients for the bread have been mixed together, except for the leaven, except for the yeast that would go into the dough at the end. And Paul's saying here that this this leaven that he's talking about, that it leavens the whole lump, meaning it influences the whole set of, the whole lump of dough. A little bit, tiny bit, can influence and impact the whole thing. And that's a picture for what happens with sin, what happens with the flesh, as Paul talked about just above, where he says the destruction of the flesh. The whole lump here is the church. And it only takes a little bit of sin, a little bit of sin that has not been repented of, a little bit of overlooking sin to influence the whole church. So if a church does not address unrepentant sin among its members, then the church can be negatively impacted by it. In verse 7, he says then to cleanse out the old leaven. Paul calls the church to, to be about cleaning out this this, uh, the flesh, the worldly or sinful influence that's among them. He says that by removing the sexual immoral man from membership, they're cleansing out this old leaven. That you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He's saying that they're already a new lump. They're already, the, the, the church is already unleavened and they are to remain unleavened. Now, unleavened bread is important. To this picture, because as we see in verse at the end of verse 7, it says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So this is Passover time, the time when they should be eating unleavened bread. The Passover is a Jewish festival. It celebrates the time when the Jews were delivered out of Egypt by God. God freed them from slavery, and they began the journey to the promised land, a land that was rich and abundant and prosperous, 
that God was going to give to them as their special place to live. At the Passover, all the leaven in their houses is cleared out. They remove all of it. For the whole week, they eat only unleavened bread. And then the climax of the week is when the lamb is killed, it is cooked and eaten with the unleavened bread. Now, at the original Passover in Egypt, the lamb was a substitute for the people. The lamb died and its blood was used to put on the top of the door and on the sides. This was a mark as God's angel of death would pass over that house and not bring death to the people inside. So Paul is saying here that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's pointing to the fact that at the Passover, when the lamb was killed in Egypt, that was a picture of what Jesus was going to do all those years later. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus was a substitute for us. He died and His blood was spilled so that we could live, that we could go free. He is the ultimate and the final Passover lamb. So this is cause for celebration. Verse 8 says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival. This festival is the Passover. He's saying to celebrate with the right bread. When we come to the celebration, we don't want to bring bread that has leaven. We want to remove it and keep it out. So the picture here is that Christ is the Passover lamb and the church is the bread. And we are the come as bread that is unleavened, that is unstained from the world, that has been cleansed from sin. And it says this unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity means to be real or authentic. It's free from inconsistencies. Just as it would be inconsistent and inappropriate to bring bread that has been leavened to a Passover festival, it is inconsistent and inappropriate for God's church to be full of characteristically unrepentant sinners, people who are living a lifestyle of sin. Now, the church is full of sinners saved by grace, and we all still sin, but the key is that we would repent of that sin confessing that it is wrong, and turning to God and asking Him to heal us and to cleanse us. So just as a tiny bit of leaven in the dough can cause a reaction over the whole lump of dough, overlooked and sin that has not been repented of in the church is similar. Just a little bit can cause problems. It's inconsistent with the church's call to holiness. It's helpful to think about Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 starts with, Paul telling the believers to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This transformation that Paul talks about in Romans and the cleansing work that he talks about here in 1 Corinthians 5 is very similar. And this should be our goal is to have our minds transformed by God, renewing our mind and that is worshiping God. And we want to cleanse our hearts of this old leaven. How can we do that? We do cleanse the the church in this way by removing those from membership who are characteristically unrepentant. But we also need to, as individuals and as a church, be looking for sin in our own lives that we need to repent of. It's not just people that need to be removed from time to time. We need to be 
zealous, we need to work hard to notice and to see and repent of the sin in our own lives. Also, helping others lovingly to see their sin, that they might repent as well. We talked about admonishing, I think, last week. That's what it means to admonish, to bring to the attention of someone that they may be out of line, that there may be sin in their life. So we want to do that for ourselves and with each other among our members. A good verse to think about is the very end of Psalm 139. The author says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We should make Psalm 139 our prayer to the Lord, individually and as a church, that He would search us and know us, and lead us in the everlasting way. That God would give us that mindset as a church that we would desire to see, to see our sin, that we might repent of it and worship God with lives of sincerity and truth. Well, the last section here is verse 9 to 13. And here we're going to see the church and others, our interaction with people outside the church. What should that look like? Let me read in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So in case there was any confusion or misunderstanding from what Paul wrote in this, uh, the previous section or in a previous letter, Paul clarifies his point with this section. This previous letter that he's talking about is lost to us. We don't have it. And it's really not worth dwelling on, except to know that Paul has already told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. So we see from that that even the man who's to be removed from membership, he should have known Paul's stance on sexual immorality. His church discipline should not be a surprise to him when it comes. He should know the truth and how he should have been acting. And the church also should have known Paul's stance on this as well. Now verse 10, Paul makes a list of certain types of people. He says, the sexual immoral, the greedy and swindlers, idolaters. And the way he lists the, these people is they are characteristically unrepentant. They're living lives that are defined by and characterized by these sins. He says, the sexual immoral of this world. Further showing that Paul means sinful people who are not believers. They're not born again. They're not part of God's kingdom. Now we know the world is made up of sinners. We who are Christians are former sinners. That's how we all start. Now we, we do still sin, but we are new people in Christ. We are part of that new lump. We're not characterized as sinners. We can say, we used to be, I used to be a sinner, but now I'm a child of God. Now, I still sin, yes, but I'm not defined as being characterized as being a sinner in the same way 
Paul characterizes and defines these people here. So in verse 10, Paul is saying that the goal is not to remove ourselves from the world or that we should not have relationships with people of the world. For it's, it's completely uh, impossible and it's not even the goal that Christians will be cut off from the world. But we are to associate with, with the world. We're not to cut ourselves off from the world. But look then at verse 11 with me. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. So here, notice it says, bears the name of brother. These are people who use the name Christian, but their actions are consistent with sinners, not with children of God. Now, the, it says to not even eat with such a one. To eat with here would be to give approval to them. One way that we apply this is that we have removed from our book table some books written by people who have left the faith or have lived in a way that would warrant church discipline if they were members here. They have not lived a way that's consistent with children of God, but have gone astray and, and lived a way that's characteristically unrepentant. Now, the books might be good. that might have helpful content. There might not be anything misleading necessarily in those books. But having their books on our book table, we might be giving approval to them as a person and to their life. In order to, to not give that approval, we want to take the books off the book table. And that's similar to what Paul is talking about here in eating with someone. It doesn't mean that we cannot be friends with or even uh, eat with someone, but we don't want to share the meal with them in giving approval to their lifestyle. This also may be pointing to the Lord's Supper, which Paul is going to talk about later in this book. And we don't want to eat with them or share the Lord's Supper with them as a brother and sister or sister in Christ. Again, making highlighting the divide between God's people and the rest of the world. You might be thinking, well, don't we accept all people? Shouldn't we accept all people? This doesn't sound very loving. Well, we do accept all people, and we want to accept everyone as they are. What we cannot do is accept someone as they are not. Meaning, we can't accept someone as a brother or sister in Christ if they are, in fact, not in Christ. We talked about earlier, that would be lying to them, telling them that they are good, like spiritually they're fine when they're really not. And that would be lying to others as well, to ourselves and to the world. So we do accept people. Anyone can come to our service. We welcome anybody. If you're visiting, we're so glad you're here. You are welcome to be here. We associate with brothers and sisters in Christ as brothers and sisters. And we associate with those who are not Christians, who are defined as sinners, as sinners. But we, we associate with them by loving them. We don't push them aside or say, you're on the outside. No, we love them. We pray for people who are not in Christ, that they would hear the gospel and believe in Jesus and be in Christ. The invitation is that they would join us following Jesus. Not that the separation is forever. We invite them and hope that they would be part of our body as believers. But until they are, we cannot treat them as brothers and sisters. In verse 
uh, 12 and 13. We see it's, it's the church's responsibility to know who's inside the church. We should take, take care to know about the lives of our fellow members. Not in some way to shame them at all, but that we might help each other grow in faithfulness and true worship of God. It's for the sake of the membership, for the sake of our church, for the sake of ourselves, that we would know each other well. We see here that God is the one who judges those outside, verse 13. He's responsible for those who are outside. We are responsible to know and care for those who are inside. This reminds me of Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. They're both praying. And I think it's easy for us to be like the Pharisee in this parable. The Pharisee prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. And it's easy for us to look down on people like that, to take the position of that Pharisee. But Jesus goes on to say, he goes on to say this about the tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is to remind us that we should be concerned about the behavior of ourselves and our fellow members rather than trying to look down on or even fixing the outside world. We want to take the position of this tax collector saying, God, have mercy on me. We need you. This is a position of repentance. Have mercy on me. I have sinned. This chapter concludes in verse 13 with a quote from the Old Testament. It says, purge the evil person from among you. This same phrase is found multiple times in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 13 and 17 and 21 and 22. This is when the people were being taught how they should be and how they should function as a people. In this quote, in quoting this, Paul's reminding the church of their role, the responsibility for her members, that any false members would be removed, that they would be purged. Not purged in the way of punished, again, but purged in that they would know correctly where they stand before God. The, the, the divide between God's people and the rest of the world would be correctly communicated. So if you're not a Christian today, I urge you to become one. Die to your sin and begin to live the life that God gives freely through faith in Jesus. To be a Christian a person must die to their sin, admitting that they are sinful, and then turning to God, accepting His free gift of salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters of WSBC, we must, with God's help and His power, take serious our responsibility to protect the holiness of God's church. We are set apart by God. We need to take serious our responsibility to be holy before God. We do this by repenting of our sins in our own lives, lovingly walking with our fellow members as they repent of sin as well. Let's do this together. Please pray with me. God, we are your people and this is your church. Please search us, God, and know us. Help us to see and to repent of sin that leavens the whole lump. God, please lead us on the path of sincerity and truth and that we would worship you to your glory and for our good. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.